Sometimes we bring suffering upon others. We can, for example, at a time like this, become so obsessed with our own safety, our own health, our own comfort uh, during this pandemic, say, or during a season of unrest over police brutality, that we end up ignoring the safety and economic welfare of people who are more vulnerable than we are. And there are always plenty of people who are more vulnerable than you and me. And then sometimes, here's a fourth source of suffering, sometimes suffering just happens for no obvious or apparent reason at all. I once had to bury a two-year-old who, despite all of our church's fervent prayers and deep faith, nevertheless died of cancer. Or another example, more up-to-date, some friends sail through COVID-19 infections while others have horrible times, others even die. So at times like this, particularly, but in life generally, we need to understand suffering. We need to try to parse it as believers. Uh, many of you are believers, perhaps all of you, and we need to figure out how to cope with it. I want to, for starters, I want to talk about two things today uh, with reference to coping with suffering. Number one, we remember, we remind ourselves that no matter how things may look, God really is good. And then secondly, we join God by fighting as we can against suffering where we encounter it. So those two things. First of all, we tell ourselves that God is good. Uh, looking back at Genesis 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, behold there means pay attention, take note, look. Behold, it was very good. With effortless majesty, simply by speaking, God made a very good, pleasing, beautiful, suitable, functional world. You know, we don't have to agree on how long he took to do this. We don't have to agree on the process he used to do it. We don't have to agree on precisely how what we see now reflects what was in the mind of God at the beginning in order to believe in the goodness of God's workmanship. Behold, what he had made was very good. And he made a very good world. Why? Because he is good. <laughs> it's a reflection of his own character. We heard sung Psalm 100 a little bit earlier. Let me read verses 4 and 5 from Psalm 100 again to you. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now this the Bible asserts repeatedly over and over again in every place of the Bible. We read this assertion that God is good. But it raises the question, the question which we must honestly ask ourselves, why should we believe it in the light of what life is sometimes like, in the light of COVID-19, in the light of fresh revelations of systemic racism, which we may have ourselves been on the receiving end of, or at a time of growing violence. Well, let me share with you three reasons that come out of the scriptures as to why we can believe that God is good. The first is this. We can trust in God's goodness because 
he tells us quite honestly, he's upfront about this, that his goodness, though real, is not always easily discernible to us. I mean, hear him questioning Job. Job suffered an enormous amount. And eventually at the end of the book of Job, Job meets with God. God appears to him out of the whirlwind. And God asks him a series of questions. Here are some of them. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Obviously, no. Or this one, have you commanded the morning since your days begun? Have you ever made the sun come up, Job? <laughs> I bring the sun up, not you. Or another question, Job, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? That's, that's a constellation. Uh, it's a cluster of stars. Can you bind all those stars together, Job? Can you do that? Or can you loose the belt of Orion? That's another constellation. And then finally, or two other questions, who has put wisdom in the mind? Job, have you put wisdom in the human mind? Have you done that? And who has given understanding to the heart? Now, Jesus, uh, God doesn't ask these questions in a mean-spirited way. He just very lovingly but very firmly says, Job, think about it. Think about who I am. Think about who you are as you face life as it comes to you. William Cowper, a great poet and hymn writer, friend of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, spent an enormous amount of his time in very, a very dark place, and yet he wrote and likely learned through his darkness these words, and you'll recognize some of them almost immediately. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, deep down in these minds of non, un, 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 that are unfathomable, you can't get to the bottom of them, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work. We'll look at his work and we'll scan it to try to figure things out and we'll scan his work in vain. We won't be able to figure out what he's up to. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. In due time, he will make plain what we ourselves have a hard time seeing. You see, our difficulty seeing God's goodness in any particular set of circumstances, does not prove that God doesn't care. It only rather points to the limits of our understanding. Now, knowing this reality is no excuse for glibly saying to a suffering friend or even to ourselves, well, after all, God does move in a mysterious way. That's ridiculous. We mustn't do that. There's nothing glib either about our suffering or about anybody's suffering or about God's infinite wisdom, and it would be wrong to treat either of them lightly. Nevertheless, and this is the point I'm trying to make, suffering does present us with the opportunity in the anguish of our hearts and the anguish of our own country's hearts to admit that we are creatures and that our insights into the wisdom of our eternal and infinite Father are deeply limited by our finitude, number one, and by our sinfulness, Number two, so we can trust that God is good, even when we cannot see how. He invites us to trust him. That's the first thing I want to say. Here's the second thing. 
one of the reasons that God's goodness does not always look good to us or feel good to us is that it is a certain sort of goodness. It's a particular sort of goodness, one that is not always comfortable. It's the sort of goodness that is passionately committed to our long-term transformation and not always to our short-term happiness or care. Again, look at Genesis 1, verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's an extraordinary and a wonderful statement. If you think about us and ourselves, God has made us for, in a particular way, for a particular purpose. He's made us for him. He's made us to be like him. He's made us to love and enjoy him in the proper enjoyment of all the fullness with which he has surrounded us. But we have a problem, and God knows this problem, and we sometimes don't see it. We have acquired a self-destructive tendency to make more of the gifts of God than of the giver himself. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, to worship the creature rather than the creator. And God knows that this tendency, if he lets it run amok in our lives, will destroy us. It will actually destroy us. And Romans 1 uh, depicts some of the ways in which that destruction actually happens uh, to us. And therefore, God has found it necessary at times in his mercy to wean us from the good gifts of life, from at least some of the good gifts of life. And that, that weaning process is happening to us now during the upsetment of our present time. The coronavirus threatens many of the good things things that we have come to rely on. And they're good things. The problem is we rely on them too much. Job security is one of them. Or vacation plans that maybe is a little bit less intense than job security. Or health or education or the education, our own education, the education of our children. The nearness of friends, the nearness of family, easily accessible food, customary entertainment, a predictable economy and so on. Now this is a hard threat. I want to minimize how hard this can be. This is a hard threat, but I want you to see that it is not intrinsically evil, this difficulty, because it teaches us with a gut punch what we all need to know and what we will all eventually discover and what vast numbers of less privileged fellow travelers on this planet have known all their lives down through the ages and even in the present age. And it's this, that nothing in this life or this world lasts. That nothing in this life deserves, therefore, our deepest trust and hopes that we were not made most deeply for any of the lovely things that this lovely world has to offer coming to us from God's hand. We were made for God, who alone lasts and who alone is enough. Let me put what I just said positively. We can think about it this way. Whatever happens to us circumstantially, whether sickness or injustice or even death, the God for whom we were made and who comes to us in Jesus Christ isn't going anywhere. And this he wants us to know. 
He wants us to discover it. And sometimes he helps us discover it by taking some of the other things away. God was with George Floyd. God is with George Floyd, called, quote, a person of peace sent from the Lord who helped the gospel go forward, unquote, by the pastor he assisted in a Houston housing project. What a comfort it has to be to him now to know that God never left him, that God has not gone away, that he's with God now. And in saying that, I don't want to minimize even remotely the horrible thing that was done to him. I don't think God wants to minimize that. But nevertheless, God was with him. God is with him. When he cried out for his mother uh, as he was dying, um, uh, God heard his cry. And God uh, was with him. And God is with us as well. God isn't going anywhere. We were made for him. And sometimes he has to put us through difficulty so that we will learn that and discover that afresh. That's the second thing. God is good with a kind of goodness that it's, uh, that's not always comfortable. And then here's the third thing I want to say. We can believe in God's goodness because it is always there. It's always richly present if only we would train ourselves to acknowledge it, to see it, and to thank God for it. And let me read a, an extended portion again from Genesis 1. And here the, here are the expressions of generosity and kindness pouring forth from the heart of God. He says, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, take note, Adam and Eve. Listen, listen up, notice, take note. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Incredible generosity an outpouring of the love of God for his creatures. Now, Think about that in terms of some of the problems we're presently experiencing. When the bottom falls out of our lives or threatens to fall out of our lives, it's very hard. But it is also potentially revealing. If we are spiritually attuned, we will find ourselves asking, okay, it's falling out or it's threatening. The bottom is threatening to fall out of my life now. Why hasn't it fallen out before? Or for such a long time, why day after day, year after year, have I had food to eat and such ease getting it? Why year after year have I had friends and family to console and to challenge me? Why day by day have I been able to order my life and world with a body that responds to my wishes? Why have I had motor control for all these years? Why have I been able, in other words, to subdue the earth, including my own body, so that I can work? and I can think, and I can go to the refrigerator, and I can play, and I can speak, and I can argue, 
And even sadly, I can do cruel and neglectful things our, uh, to other people. Why, hour by hour, have I had this ability given to me? And the answer is this, because my maker and my redeemer has been consistently good to me. He has been sustaining me in all the activities that constitute ordinary life much less all the things related to extraordinary life, spiritual transformation. He's been good to me in that department as well. Why do I still believe? <laughs> because he's been good to me. He's given me faith and it's kept it coming back to me. You see, we live and we move and we have our being by him. If only we would train ourselves to see it and give him thanks for it. The earth, we're told in Psalm 33, 5, is filled, including your life and mine, with the steadfast love of the Lord. May I, may I make a suggestion, a practical suggestion along the lines of what I've just said. Make a habit, especially now when things are tough, of thanking God for the evidence of his love in your life. Now, by urging this upon us, I'm not inviting us to whistle in the dark despite the hard facts, to pretend that hard things aren't hard. I'm not urging us, but I am urging us, if you need to lament, by all means lament. There are lots of laments uh, in the scripture and we're invited to lament. But I am urging us, even in the midst of our lamenting, to marshal the facts. Don't avoid the facts, marshal them to call in the evidence of God's care, first in the past, the past week, the past month, the past year, the past decade, but then on to, into the present. I'm asking that we look for divine hugs. I'd love to use that phrase. All sorts of things happen to us in life, which are hugs from God, if we'd only see them as such. Uh, look for them. I, identify, let's say a Zoom call from long lost friends. That's a hug. It isn't just any old thing, that's a hug from God. Identify them as hugs from God and then acknowledge them to God and acknowledge them to friends. I'm suggesting that we take time, which we may have more of now. On the other hand, we may have less of now. I get it. Um, I'm suggesting write prayers, of, write out prayers of thanks to God. Itemize his care. Taking our cue from Jeremiah who wrote, as Jerusalem collapsed in ruins around him in Lamentations 3.23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Even as Jerusalem is collapsing, his mercies are new. Great. And then he turns to God himself and he says to God, great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And above all, above, above all, I'm urging us to take note of God's steadfast love to us in the gift of his son. For Jesus's life and death and resurrection guarantee whatever life may throw at us that God loves us and that no misfortune or injustice, not even death itself, can ever separate us from God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Bear in mind this fact. It's a very, very important fact. It is the gift of Jesus Christ who is here to stay. 
who is not going anywhere. And it is not the gifts of this life, which come and go, that proves God's goodness and that secures our future. As Paul puts it in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's the all again. Another one of the alls, everys. Hear those words, all, 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 everything. That's his love. That's the quality of his love for us. So I'm done. I've given you three reasons for why we can believe that God is good. And let me go on to the last thing, which will be briefer, uh, but very important. God really is good. So what do we do about it? <laughs> what do we do <laughs> about the fact that God is so good, uh, especially in the face of suffering? of suffering. Well, in one word, we fight. To make it a bit uh, longer, we join God in his fight against the darkness, against suffering in whatever ways we possibly can. You know, there is, there is more to God's magisterial, let there be light back there in Genesis 1, than let's have some photons so that we can see what's going on. He made that pronouncement, remember, over the abyss, which in the cosmology of the second millennium BC, when Genesis 1 was written, was the place of chaos, darkness, and evil. And John brings this reality forward when he writes of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about this. When God came to be with us, when God walked among us in the person of Jesus, what did he do? He went after the darkness, tooth and nail. He assaulted, threw down the darkness, assaulted and threw down evil and suffering wherever he encountered them, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead, confounding lies and falsehood, banishing the demonic, restoring the lonely, dismantling oppression. And at the end of his life, he utterly demolished the darkness by enduring it in its fullness in our place. See, God doesn't so much explain suffering to us as he attacks it and destroys it <laughs> through his incarnation and his suffering and his death. And he invites you and me to get on board with his program, to join him in this assault on the darkness. And let me try to apply this in a couple of particular ways. I'll put it all in terms of stuff we get to do because of our God. We, we get to applaud, literally applaud first responders when we see them. We get to applaud healthcare workers and grocery workers. We get to wave to bus drivers. I love to wave to bus drivers. Sometimes they start to pull over thinking I'm flagging them down, but I'm just waving. We get to wave to bus drivers. We get to advocate for the testing that will enable us to identify and contain the virus. And we get to cheer on those who do the painstaking and costly work of developing and distributing a vaccine to end it. Not just because it's appropriate to do those things, it's, and not just because it's encouraging to them. We get to do so because we belong to the God who walked among us and walks among us still casting down 
down all that is wrong in our world. We celebrate his assault upon what's wrong when people who are fighting against what's wrong, uh, when we bump into them in life. Or here's another example, another thing we get to do as we join forces with God, we get to cover our faces with masks in public places and perhaps even to make masks ourselves, not just or primarily because Dr. Fauci and other people urge us to, but because our God hates the spread of disease. And we fight against the spread of disease by wearing masks. We're not making a political statement. We're just celebrating God's hatred of disease. Or here's another thing we get to do. We get to support efforts to ensure that the poor, the hungry, and the jobless find relief from the impact of COVID-19, not just in our country, but also in the poorer countries of the world, because God has come to this world to wipe away every tear from our eyes, every tear from every eye in every corner of the world. He loves our world that way. And we get to work with him. Or here's another one. If you're a white guy like me, you get to listen carefully and empathetically to the story of an African-American or an Asian-American friend who is suffering in some way because your elder brother Jesus died to make a single family out of the human race. He came, suffered, lived, and died to make one family and we celebrate his work when we work to make one family with one another. A couple of others. We get to be safe as police officers because like our master, we have earned the love of our communities by serving them. And whether we're police officers or not, we get to protest against police brutality because our master died under oppression in order to destroy oppression. And whether we're police officers or not, we get to protest against looting because our elder brother never took anything himself, even though he rightly owned everything. <laughs> and finally, we get, whether we're police officers or not, we get to protect against protests, against the destruction in our streets because our master lived and died to bring shalom to our streets and to our city. Uh, let, me, let me bring things to a conclusion uh, by putting things this way. We all seem to need some, something to hate. Seems to run in our bloodstream. We, we, we're, we get so angry so quickly. We, it seems like there's this deeply embedded need to hate. Sadly, we often hate the wrong things. We hate ourselves. We mustn't hate ourselves. We should hate the sin in ourselves. We shouldn't hate ourselves. We hate other people, or we hate certain political parties or the people who drive them. Sadly, sometimes our priorities and perspectives get so twisted that we hate things that are actually good. We hate things that are true. We hate things that are beautiful. How refreshing it is to know that there really is something to hate with a good conscience. You can take those imprecatory psalms and you can speak them with a full heart, 
not against people, no. But there is something we can hate. We get to join our God in hating all that is still broken and wrong in our benighted world. And with that hatred, we also get to rejoice because our Redeemer declares, behold, and here comes another all. Behold, take note, I am making all things new. Perhaps you remember that great Welsh hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. That's a picture of life. We're pilgrims making our way through this barren land. <laughs> well, the final stanza is about death. It speaks of our death. We read, the words go, when I tread the verge of Jordan. In other words, when I come to the edge of the Jordan River that I'm going to have to cross when I die, and I may die from COVID, I don't know. <laughs> but when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. And then we speak to Jesus, calling him a wonderful name, death of death and hell's destruction. That's Jesus's name. Jesus's name is death of death. Jesus's name is hell's destruction. So we speak to him and we sing death of death and hell's destruction. Land me, would you? Land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises. I will ever sing to thee. I will ever sing to thee. So we have a lot to give thanks for, a lot to praise God for. Join me as I pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, you are the death of death. You are hell's destruction. Uh, you um, prosecuted your Father's hatred against darkness. And thank you, Lord, that it has brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We belong to you. And you are in us, working through us and working with us to change the ugly things in us, uh, to teach us to love you first and foremost and our neighbor as ourselves. And we're thankful for that. And we pray that you will continue your work in us, that you will encourage us in the knowledge that you are good and that we ourselves will be good because of that. And we ask this in your blessed name. Amen.